Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your camp counselor Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features 19, 80, and 1. Huh? What's that mean? It means all movies covered are slashers from the year 1981. How exciting. Follow me into this school to hear about some slashers. We definitely won't get slashed in there. Number 1, The Burning, 1981, directed by Tony Malam. A groundskeeper at a summer camp named Cropsey ends up on fire after a prank gone wrong. He survives and kills a prostitute right after being released from the hospital. Kids at a different summer camp are having a great time. The kids go on an overnight canoe adventure. Cropsey starts killing them. Todd, one of the kids that was there when Cropsey caught fire, goes to save another kid named Alfred. Todd and Alfred kill Cropsey, but his body isn't found. Cropsey is the killer. The Burning is based on a story originally written by Harvey Weinstein. The movie includes two rapey characters. You write what you know, I guess. Have fun rotting in prison until you die, Javi. Besides the rapiness... The Burning is a very fun slasher. It is set at a summer camp like so many others, but it holds its own. That's because The Burning isn't just a slasher. It's also a feel-good summer camp movie with likable characters. Well, mostly likable characters. When Cropsey isn't killing kids, The Burning is about a group of misfit dudes trying to have a good time at camp. The tipping point for me to check out the movie was learning that Fisher Stevens is in it. I was on a bit of a Fisher Stevens high after watching Hackers and Super Mario Brothers. I needed more. He plays a character named Woodstock, who's a lovable, lanky goofball. Towards the beginning of the burning, Woodstock goes back to grab something from a cabin by himself. I thought he was going to die on his errand, but luckily enough, the whole scenario was a fake out. Fisher Stevens does in fact meet his demise later on in the film in a straight up massacre I never saw coming. Campers go on an overnight canoe trip, a girl is killed, unbeknownst to everyone, and the canoes end up missing. A raft is made. Woodstock and a bunch of others board the raft and head off to get some help. They come across one of the canoes in the water. I've seen a few spooky movies in my day. I was 100% sure They'd paddle up to the canoe and find the body of the girl that was killed. Nope. As soon as the raft is in range for a maniac to pop up in the canoe and start slashing and hacking away at the raft crew, something unpredictable happens. I might have just ruined the surprise. 
Cropsy pops up and starts slashing and hacking the raft crew with a big old pair of gardening shears. It's sheer insanity. The body count had been rising slower than sourdough bread before this raft rampage. The count goes from 2 to 7 in under a minute. I was blown away. I was also sad because Fisher Stevens' fingers were chopped off and he died. R.I.P. Woodstock. We all loved you. The gore is all well done. In the raft massacre alone you have chopped off digits, a deep forehead gash, stabbed necks, tons of bloody fun. The effects work was done by Tom Savini. It blows my mind how busy he was back in the late 70s, early 80s. He turned down Friday the 13th Part 2 to work on the burning. He liked the burning script more. Not only is all the gore fantastic, the makeup effects for Crispy Old Cropsy are solid. Savini didn't have a lot of time to put the look together, but it works. Back to the acting. It's pretty good. Besides Fisher Stevens, other soon-to-be way bigger stars pop up. Jason Alexander is one of the guys in the friend group. He's hilarious. Holly Hunter plays a small role in the movie. Larry Joshua plays a meathead character named Glazer that is the villain of the camp before Cropsey makes his debut. During the climax, where Todd finds Cropsey in a mine, he also sees the body of the first camp girl who died. I thought it looked off, and turns out it's just a spliced-in freeze frame of her body since she wasn't originally going to be found in the mine. I don't know anything about Cropsey, he's a New York urban legend. An entire horror documentary was created about him, so maybe I'll check that out in the future. You should check out The Burning if you are a slasher fan. It's entertaining and full of heart. Number 2, Bloody Birthday, 1981, directed by Ed Hunt. Three children, Curtis, Debbie, and Stephen, are born on the same day during a solar eclipse. Ten years later, they start killing people. They start with a couple in a graveyard. They then kill Debbie's dad. Joyce and her younger brother Timmy are just trying to live their lives. The trio continues murdering. Curtis kills two people in a van, one of their teachers, and Debbie kills her sister. Joyce is suspicious of the trio, so they try to kill her. Debbie asks Joyce to babysit. Joyce and Timmy go over to Debbie's, where the trio tries to kill them. Curtis and Steven are apprehended, but Debbie escapes with her mom's help and continues her spree. Curtis, Debbie, and Steven are the killers. I didn't think I was a big fan of killer kids, but Bloody Birthday showed me the light. It hit me over the head with how creepy kids can be, like the kids hit Debbie's dad in the head multiple times with a baseball bat. That kill happens incredibly early on and really sets the stakes. If the psychotic trio will work together to bash in one of their dad's heads, no one is off limits for a one-way trip to murder town. They make it look like dear old dad tripped on a skateboard and bonked his head on some concrete steps. You're supposed to assume the skateboard was the whole plan, so when that doesn't work out and the kids go to plan B, where the B stands for baseball bat brain bashing, it's shocking. Some of the other kills are a little silly and unbelievable. One half of the grave couple is lifted off the ground and strangled with a jump rope. These weak-ass kids are not picking up a fully grown person. Now that I think about it, that's the only truly unbelievable kill. I could see these kiddos legitimately killing people with all the head bashing, gunshots, and arrow to the eyeball. Only the strangulation seemed improbable. All the acting worked for me, which is surprising seeing as how many characters are portrayed by kids. 
Curtis and Debbie were played by Billy Jane and Elizabeth Hoy, respectively, and they are fantastic little sociopaths. They have a lot more dialogue and screen time than Steven, who's just kind of there. Steven wields the baseball bat for the aforementioned dad beatdown, but after that, Steven fades into the background. Timmy was played by Casey Martell, who was also in E.T. and the Amityville Horror. He's not bad. Joyce was played by Lori Lethen. She's fine. She's in another horror movie, Return to Horror High, that I need to check out in the future. It sounds like it's a sequel movie where the first one doesn't actually exist. That's always fun. The gore in Bloody Birthday isn't all that crazy. Wait a minute, I don't think the kids kill anyone on their actual birthday. The title of the movie is a lie. The gore that does pop up is well done and practical. The teacher's gunshot and sister's arrow wounds are pretty much the full extent of the gore. Curtis is such a smug little bastard throughout the entire movie, so I was disappointed that none of the trio, especially Curtis, end up getting theirs. I didn't expect the kids to die in a hilarious yet gruesome manner, but having them meet their maker in the end would have been the cherry on top to a solid slasher. There's a peephole sequence where Curtis and Steven peep on Debbie's sister as she's changing, before Debbie uses the same hole to stealthily take out her sister with the bow and arrow. I found its inclusion to be a little strange and thought it might have been added because of the movie Porky's, but both movies came out the same year. I had a lot of fun with Bloody Birthday and recommend checking it out when you need a killer kid fix. Number 3, Graduation Day, 1981, directed by Herb Freed. A runner named Laura dies from exhaustion in her boyfriend Kevin's arms after finishing a race. Laura's sister Anna comes home from the Navy to attend Laura's graduation. Members of the track team start dying. A body is found. The coach thinks Kevin is behind the murders. The coach runs off and Kevin catches up to him and admits to the killings. The coach gets Kevin's knife away from him right before a detective shows up. The detective shoots and kills the coach without asking him to drop the knife or anything. Anna goes over to Kevin's house and realizes he's the killer when she finds him with her sister's corpse in his room. After a long chain of events, Anna pushes Kevin back into a spiked corpse he hung up. Kevin dies. Exhaustion, a detective, and Kevin are the killers. I watched Graduation Day for my first ever Blood and Bone Twitch livestream watch party. If you're interested in joining me for future Blood and Bones, all you need is a Twitch account and Amazon Prime. Then go to twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker whenever I host them. Follow me at bonesawbaker on Instagram or Twitter to keep up to date with when Blood and Bones are happening. Doing the watch party was a ton of fun. Graduation day is an enjoyable all over the place time. Even though the movie has red herrings galore, I knew it was Kevin. Kevin is the only creepy 40-year-old looking high school student in the whole movie. I get it. Kevin, a complete creepy uggo, lost the only girl that would ever give him the time of day. Of course he's going to kill the people responsible for taking love away from him. Do I think the coach and track team were responsible for Laura's death? Nah. Her death is never fully explained, but I'm assuming she had an underlying heart condition or something. One character that's a red herring for all of two seconds is Principal Guglioni. I didn't think it was him until he cut up an apple without removing the core. If he had taken a bite of the Cory apple, it would have been obvious that this psychotic lunatic was the killer. 
but Guglioni was only goofing around with a knife with no desire to mosh the palm or eat the apple. One of my favorite musical artists, Yell, has a song where she sings about eating an apple while rotating her hips. Let's get back on track regarding how funny the name Guglioni is. During my viewing, I laugh every time I heard the name, forget that the principal's name was actually Guglioni, laugh when it was brought up again, rinse, repeat. Unfortunately, Principal Guglioni did not speak with an over-the-top Italian accent. There are a lot of good looks in the movie. Well, interesting looks. Looks where someone got up in the morning, put on practically a clown outfit, and decided the world ain't ready for this amount of swag, but it's gonna have to deal with it today. The first insane outfit is worn by a sexual harasser truck driver. He's wearing a purple striped shirt and an ascot. The ascot ends up being used against him after he gets handsy with Anna, the Navy SEAL. Well, it's not confirmed she's a SEAL, but she's a SEAL in my headcanon. A Navy SEAL, not an actual SEAL. Where was I going? Oh yeah, Anna counters rapey truck driver's thigh grab with an ascot strangle. That's personally why I never wear ascots. They make it way easier for people to strangle you. You could be walking down the street, strutting your stuff with everyone's eyes on your beautiful ascot, when at any moment someone behind you could use your amazing taste in accessorizing to end your life. The other bold look came from the music teacher who's wearing a full pale blue suede suit. Linnea Quigley goes into his classroom where he says she's going to fail the semester. She then takes her top off. I was hoping he'd say, honey, put those away. See you in summer school. She ends up passing instead. Quigley isn't the only name I recognized. Vanna White also pops up. She's a side character with barely any screen time that I definitely wouldn't have recognized without looking her up. I'm not a big wheel fan, more of a Jeopardy guy myself. The acting? It's all good enough for me. I don't expect much from an 80s slasher. The gore? It's varied. When the first girl is murdered in the forest, you see blood start spraying out of the fake knife before it makes contact with her. You have to love that lack of attention to detail. Could we not do another take of the killer brandishing the knife? The first kill is definitely the most boring. It's followed by a fencing sword throat impalement and multiple actual sword decapitations. The spiked corpse? A guy is practicing his pole vaulting and like a true amateur doesn't check the landing mat for spikes before vaulting. Any vaulter worth their weight in salt knows you check the mat for spikes before vaulting. Vaulter's spike filled corpse is the one Kevin is pushed back on. You should have despiked the vaulter Kevin. The coach's death? I'm still mad about the coach's death. Some dumbass detective catches up to the coach and Kevin. He says, hey coach Michaels. Coach Michaels looks at the detective, then the detective instantly fills him with lead. No freeze, no drop the knife, only straight up murder. Pigs, man. Throughout graduation day, there are sequences of shots being flash cut together that were disorienting in a bad way. The score is fantastic. All the songs but graduation day blues are bangers. The graduation day blues segment was all the proof I needed that Kevin was the killer. How'd I know he was the killer? He plays the harmonica, open and shut case. Luckily, Graduation Day makes up for the garbage blues song with Gangster Rock. A real band called Felony shows up in the movie. They look like a 90s goth band cosplaying as old-timey gangsters. They play their song 
Gangster Rock in its 7 minute 34 second entirety which is blared over an entire sequence of a couple getting murdered. Having Gangster Rock be a prominent part of the movie was definitely a choice. I almost ended up putting Laura's corpse on the killer list. Somehow Laura's corpse ends up pushing Kevin out a window. I did not see that coming at all. Okay, maybe Anna pushed the corpse into Kevin as self-defense, but Kevin's room is literally full of medieval weapons. Show anyone that scene, pause it before the corpse and Kevin tumble out the window, ask them how Anna is going to get out of this crazy situation, and I guarantee no one will say she's going to push her sister's corpse into Kevin to knock him out a window. Any rational person will think that Anna's going to grab a weapon off the wall and remove Kevin's head from its shoulders. My expectations were subverted. Graduation day is a fun time. Make sure to watch it with some friends. Number 4, Just Before Dawn, 1981, directed by Jeff Lieberman. On a mountain, Ty and Vachel are celebrating a successful hunt. A large man shows up and kills Vachel. Ty runs off. A little time passes in a group of five friends, made up of two couples, Warren and Constance, Jonathan and Megan, and John's brother Daniel, go up the mountain to camp. A forest ranger warns them not to. The friends run into Ty, who also warns them. At their camp, the friends are once again warned to leave by a family that lives on the mountain. Jonathan, Daniel, and Megan are hunted and killed by large machete-wielding twin brothers. Ty finds the forest ranger and tells him about Vachel's murder. The ranger shoots and kills one of the twins to save Constance. Warren and Constance start packing up camp when the other twin shows up, stabs Warren, and grabs Constance. Constance shoves her arm down the twin's throat to kill him. The sun begins to rise. The large, machete-wielding twins are the killers. If they hadn't killed Vachel, I don't know if I'd even put them on the list. Three people. Three warnings. Three. If I was going to a secluded area and was warned three times that I should leave because it's dangerous, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm gonna skedaddle. The five dumbasses brought death upon themselves. Sure, the machete-wielding husky boy twins technically murdered three of the friends, but those three dead kids were warned three times that they'd die if they didn't leave. This reminds me of the stab victim who was quoted, What are you going to do, stab me? Here's a scenario. Say you're walking to the local pizza place for a slice. As you strut down the sidewalk, you're stopped by a man wearing a strange top hat. The man says, Don't go to the pizza place. You'll get a slice, but not the kind you want. To be clear, you'll end up stabbed if you go there. You brush off Doomsayer numero uno and continue frolicking towards that sweet pizza pie. Some time passes and you're stopped by another person, a woman who looks like a textbook librarian. She says to you, hey bud, don't go to the pizza place right now or someone will straight up lodge a knife into your squishy body. Undeterred, you mosey onwards towards the Zaw. Upon arriving, you step inside, and a young teen, adorned in a marinara-stained uniform, informs you, There is indeed a crazed killer behind the counter that has stabbed everyone who has tried to place an order today. If 
At this point, you still go to the counter. Say you want a large pep and an order of garlic knots, but instead of delicious carbs, you end up with a ridiculously large blade plunged into your stomach. Can you really place all the blame on the pizza pie penetrator? Ew, uh, I want it to be alliterative. Pizza pie plunger? That's confusing. Pizza pie perforator? Puncturer? Mm, no, those names make it sound like it's some kind of pizza sex pervert. Naming of the fictional pizza place killer aside, you getting stabbed is on you at that point. The third group to warn the friends to leave the mountain are a hillbilly, mountain billy, his wife daughter, and their kid who tell the quintuple to leave after shooting their boombox. If someone shot my boombox from the dark woods, I think I'd freak out at least a smidge. The friends are just bummed that the tunes have been silenced. They aren't stressing the fact that a gun-wielding possible maniac has not revealed themselves. Even after finding Jonathan's body, no one seems all that startled. Oh yeah, what I'm trying to say is that the acting is awful. The killers? The two giant mountain Billy inbred twins? They have comically high-pitched voices that make them sound like they belong in old Mickey Mouse cartoon. Actually, they sound almost exactly like Gurr in Invader Zim. It's weird. I'm not sure why the choice to edit their voices was made. At first I thought there was only one super fast big old mountain billy, which seemed unrealistic to me. You know that I care a lot about realism in my slashers. Well, I don't actually, but believing that a very robust man could silently and swiftly make his way around the mountain without alerting anyone was a bit much for me until the twin reveal. That helped my sense of disbelief a little. A majority of the kills, a full third of them, are below the belt pelvis stabs. Youch. If someone ever decides to push a large machete through my body, I would prefer they do it above the belt. The gore is not all that exciting, but it's not bad. Constance shoving her arm down her attacker's throat in self-defense sure was something. It's... Nowhere near enough to save the movie, which is dull beyond belief for the most part. Skip just before dawn. It dawned on me early on that it wasn't worth my time. I have never seen Deliverance, but watch that or wrong turn instead. Number 5, Final Exam, 1981, directed by Jimmy Huston. A college couple is killed at Makeout Point. At another college, finals are going on. A frat stages a mass shooting as a prank. The couple killer continues his spree and kills three frat guys, two girls, a lovable nerd named Radish, and a coach. The killer then tries to kill Courtney, a girl that's just trying to study and pass her tests. Courtney runs to the top of the campus's clock tower and knocks the killer off the top floor. When she runs down to the bottom floor to inspect the body, the killer grabs her, so Courtney grabs his knife and stabs him over and over until he's dead. Some random guy is the killer. Final exam. Watching it sure was about as much fun as taking a final exam. After the couple is killed in the first five minutes, the next actual non-prank kill happens about an hour later. Final exam is more of a really bad Animal House ripoff than a slasher. 
I wouldn't be surprised to find out the movie started as a crappy college comedy script. Is anything that happens in the movie funny? Nope. Unless you think staging a fake school shooting as a prank is funny. The 80s were a different time, sure, but the movie even brings up Charles Whitman. I've even heard things that aren't funny referred to being as funny as a school shooting. I got a cool prank idea, bros. Let's give a bunch of our classmates PTSD. It'll be a laugh riot. The prank is definitely the most horrifying thing in the entire movie. That and the Confederate flag and blackface statue in the frat house, which may or may not have just been there. The actual killer's kills are some of the most uninspired kills I've ever seen in a slasher. You have stabbed repeatedly to death. You have stabbed once. The only somewhat interesting kill is when Wild Man is strangled with some workout equipment. Yeah, one of the frat bros is called Wild Man. A character named Wild Man is boring. All the characters except my boy Radish are boring. I didn't even know the final girl's name without looking her up because no real time was spent with her. Radish should have been the final boy. Radish is a nerd that likes the macabre, just like all of us. He calls the police when the fake shooting happens, and the sheriff eats him alive for it. Later on, he calls the police again because corpses are popping up, and of course, the crap cop doesn't even bother showing up. I've said it before and I'll say it again, you can't spell incompetent without C-O-P. Final Exam was the second movie I live-streamed for the new Blood and Bone series, and I want to apologize to anyone who tuned in. It wasn't fun. Final Exam isn't fun at all. It's painfully mediocre. Being told who the killer is in the first five minutes definitely didn't help with the enjoyment factor. Do I think a whodunit element is necessary for a slasher to be successful? Nope, not at all. But if you're going to have a slasher where a nondescript white dude in one of the blandest get-ups of all time, jeans and an army green jacket, is your killer, you are going to have to pull a lot of strings to make them scary and intimidating. What you don't do is show the killer take out a couple, then spend the next hour showing your audience not even slightly amusing college life. There is a recurring theme throughout Final Exam, and that is face grabbing. The frat bros grab faces, the girls grab faces, the killer grabs faces. Facers were grabbed so many times that I noticed it as being unusual. I'd say one face grab from anyone who isn't the killer is weird, but there were multiple. Final Exam did not know what it wanted to be. It's a failure as a slice of life college comedy and as a slasher. Having the killer catch an arrow at the end is neat and allegedly real, but that's not nearly enough to save this dull sleep aid. The best thing in Final Exam is Courtney's stuffed green dinosaur. Number 6, Happy Birthday to Me, 1981, directed by J. Lee Thompson. A girl is murdered on her way to a pub to meet her friends. At the pub is her friends, Ginny and other popular kids. Ginny's mom died in an accident. Ginny survived but needed experimental brain surgery. More of Ginny's friends start dying, and Ginny has been having blackouts. It's looking like Ginny is the killer. It's revealed that the kids that were murdered didn't show up to her birthday party in the past. The no-shows caused Ginny's drunk mom to try and get her to the party all the kids were actually at, which resulted in the accident that killed her. Ginny's dad comes home and sees a light on in the family guest cottage. Upon arriving, he finds Ginny celebrating her birthday with a bunch of corpses. Ginny then kills her father. But wait, another Ginny is sitting at the table. 
The killer Ginny then pulls off her Ginny mask, revealing that she's actually Anne. Ginny's mom had an affair with Anne's dad. Ginny and Anne are sisters. Anne killed everyone because the affair ruined her family. Anne swings a knife at Ginny but ends up stabbing herself during a struggle. A police officer shows up to see Ginny, blood covered, knife in hand, in a room full of corpses. Drunk driving and Anne are the killers. Happy Birthday to Me is one of the hardest to follow slashers I've ever seen. It didn't help that a majority of the characters spoke their dialogue as if they were afraid a vicious bear would wake up and maul them if they were too loud. Does the twist make any sense? Kind of? There's an outcast yet still part of the group kid named Alfred who does taxidermy and special effects makeup, so Anne must have created the Ginny mask with his stuff after murdering him. What about the blackouts? Anne was straight up chloroforming Ginny every time she needed to take someone out. There is a hilarious montage of the chloroforming that's definitely one of the highlights of the movie. Here's a simple question. Did I enjoy Happy Birthday to me? N yeah. I don't know. There are some interesting parts in an almost two hour runtime. It's shot in a surprisingly artistic manner for an early 80s slasher. During the first kill where a girl is being strangled, there are a bunch of unique shots of her legs as she's trying to kick around the car she's in to escape the strangler's clutches. The whole sequence could have been a static shot of her face as she's losing consciousness, so I appreciate all the different camera angles and movement. The cinematography is a definite strength of Happy Birthday to Me. A weakness would be how convoluted the script is. Experimental brain surgery, an unreliable narrator, a damning family secret, group couples switching around like they're playing a game of musical chairs, checkeroonies all around. I could barely keep up with whether or not Ginny liked it, dude, let alone if her experimental brain surgery was causing her to become homicidal. The kills are varied. You got a throat slash, motorbike tire meets face, weights crush throat after weights crush genitals, a sheer disembowelment, a shish kebab lethally shoved into a mouth, another throat slash, and a knife to the gut. Some of the kills are a little silly. If you are doing maintenance on your bike, maybe don't wear a long scarf while one of the tires is spinning. The weight death is by far the most ridiculous. A dude bro is bench pressing. The killer puts more weight on the bar than dude bro can handle and moves the part where you rest the bar away from the bench. Instead of slowly lowering the bar to his chest and then carefully moving it off to one side or straight up dropping the bar behind his head, Dude bro just holds the bar like a fool until another weight to the crotch makes him lose his concentration. All the gore looks great, the makeup for the corpses is especially stunning. Not only does Happy Birthday to Me have kills, it also has action. Multiple cars jump a bridge that's opening up to let a boat through. The same bridge where Ginny's mom's car got stuck before plunging into the water. There's also a motorbike race and a soccer match. Was all that necessary? The bike race and soccer match could have been cut, and the movie would have felt a lot more concise. The creepy foreign exchange student stealing Ginny's panties was also an unnecessary addition. Happy Birthday to Me has a wacky, amazing ending, but the journey to the climax is a long and arduous one. Consider watching this as more of a background movie. I almost forgot about the brain surgery scene. It's gnarly. Ginny has to have brain surgery after the accident and turns out the surgery was done by a real neurosurgeon on a fake brain. Number 7. A question about Cannibal Holocaust. Cannibal Holocaust is an infamous movie and undoubtedly a piece of horror history. It's credited as the first found footage film and a cornerstone of the cannibal genre. 
Recently, the movie was shown during the last drive-in. I personally haven't seen the movie myself, but hearing that it was shown on such a big platform made me want to raise the question of whether or not Cannibal Holocaust should still have any merit in the horror community. Why have I not seen it? The inclusion of very real animal deaths played for shock value. Like that kid with the face paint so elegantly put, I like turtles. Turts are awesome. How anyone could ever consider putting a four minute long sequence of an actual turtle being tortured to death in their film is unfathomable to me. I love gore. I love when it's done well, fun, and created with practical effects. You know what I don't like? When it's real. Fake horror movie gore and the real thing are very different. I was never someone who sought out actual videos of people dying or pictures of real life gore. I feel like that was the norm in my teenage years in the early days of the internet. Even without looking for it back then, you'd end up catching glimpses if you clicked the wrong links. Do I want to see some masked maniac saw off a camper's head? Of course I do. Do I want to see an actual person have their head cut off? Absolutely not. I understand morbid curiosity, but I'll never understand seeking out footage of actual people graphically dying. I was a witness to a horrifying, fatal accident. I remember walking into my apartment right after, visibly shaken, and being asked by one of my roommates what it looked like in a gleeful tone, and him quickly being shut down by another empathetic roommate. Real gore isn't something someone should find entertaining. Where I'm trying to go with all this is, should a movie that showcases true pain and suffering of a living thing until it dies, all for shock value? still be deemed an important part of history, or should it be stripped of all merit for the inclusion of heinous material? This is something I've been asking myself. Personally, I'm leaning towards the latter. I think horror would be in almost the exact same spot without Cannibal Holocaust. I have no doubt in my mind that found footage horror would have still happened without it. If you're a listener and believe that Cannibal Holocaust is required horror viewing, let me know. I don't want to straight up condemn the movie. I'm interested in people's thoughts regarding the subject. Maybe I'm being too sensitive. If someone warns you that they're about to show something with actual animal death over and over, that still doesn't excuse them for showing it. Again, I haven't seen the movie. I'm going off of what I've read and heard. Genuinely let me know if Cannibal Holocaust is worth a watch. Hit me up at Baker on Twitter, Instagram, or Twitch or email blankisthekiller at gmail.com. If someone tells me it is, I'll check it out for the 100th episode. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 72, 1981. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, leave rating and or review on iTunes. Check out my other podcast, Four or More. That's the number four and or more all together without spaces. Want to watch a movie with me live? If you have Amazon Prime connected to a Twitch account, and tune into Blood and Bone Monday nights at 7 p.m. Central at twitch.tv slash bonesawbaker. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. Episode 73 of Blank is the Killer will be out on June 14th. Until then, stay away from rafts. They're magnets for massacres.